Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verse 18. Today's presentation is going to be three tracks, okay? The first track is going to be the communication track, how communication is uh, conducted. The second track we're going to run is the prophetic track, and then I'm going to be doing a brief exegetical presentation from a case study. Now, you guys have to smile at me because some of you are just looking at me. <laughs> All right. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before you, that you might war a good warfare. So for a few minutes here this morning, we're going to be talking to you on the subject of warring prophetically or prophetic warfare, prophetic warfare. Uh, can we throw up our communication chart there? It's difficult to know what's the right thing to do when you don't know what that is. And that's true of everything. It's difficult to know what's the right thing to do if you don't know what the right thing is. The average individual, the average person, Midori's here. Yeah. Uh, the average person generally tries to do the right thing. Turn to the person next to you and say, try to do the right thing. Try. Just try. That's true of every category in life. Try to do the right thing. But it's difficult to do the right thing if you don't know what the right thing is. Now, there's four things I want to point out here. Number one, uh, four categories of doing. The first one is when you have individuals that do the wrong thing, but they don't know they're doing the wrong thing. Doing the wrong thing, and you don't know you're doing the wrong thing. I wasn't taught uh, too much about finance. I uh, wasn't taught about being a husband or even a father. We learn some things just accidentally. And thank God we stumbled on some good principles and a philosophy and ideology in life that's paid off reasonably. But can you imagine if we were doing the wrong thing all these years and not knowing we're doing the wrong thing? That's a tremendous tragedy. Category number two, you have individuals who do the wrong thing and they know it's the wrong thing. That's a difficult bunch of people to work with. When, they, when a person is doing the wrong thing, they know they're doing the wrong thing, willingly doing the wrong thing, obdurant and refuse to change. Category number three, when you're doing the right thing, but you don't know what you're doing is right. And generally when you're doing the right thing, and you don't know that you're doing the, the, the right thing, uh, this is where a lot of warfare takes place because that devil can keep on uh, maligning your life, maligning your, uh, your mental ability, maligning your future by telling you that you're no good, you, you're useless, 
until you meet somebody in your world that's doing the same thing you're doing, and you discover sometimes late that, hey, I've been doing the right thing all this time, but I didn't know I was doing the right thing. It's like Pastor Randon referred to earlier. We've been coming here for almost 25 years. And the first time I came to Triumph, it was so overwhelming. But one of the things that really blessed me more than just being here was the fact that I finally found a place that I could relate to. Chich and I were doing the same things that, that were being done at Triumph, and we then realized that we were doing the right thing, not knowing we were doing the right thing. Category number four, which is doing the right thing, knowing you're doing the right thing. Doing the right thing and knowing you're doing the right thing, where you are making a concerted effort to do the right thing. Go with me to slide number two now. What happened here? Somewhere I just... There it is. Slide number two. It's important that we hear from God. But it's difficult to function when God is silent. I'll give a few examples of that. From the time Adam sinned, God spoke to the first human being after the fall was Cain. But from that conversation in Genesis 4 to the next conversation that's recorded that God has with humanity is Noah. That's a thousand years. How do you function when God is silent? Number two. When God does speak, learning how to interpret what God says when he speaks. Because, you know, driving here this morning, and of course that we're staying at the Elegante or whatever it is, and there's a whole lot of people stepping out of the elevator wearing white, going to some church service, whatever. Hopefully it's church-related. But, you know, there's hundreds of churches in the Beaumont area, hundreds, hundreds, and everybody's gathering to worship Everyone with their own view, their own ideology, you know, their own style, own worship. And some will sing the same song using one chord. I've been in services like that. You know, and it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's tough being a musician when you go to a place where people think they're cutting and they don't even know that they're just on one chord. <laughs> but it's very interesting because when God speaks, many times you have to interpret what God is saying. For example, I'm talking to all y'all. And I have a hundred people listening to me at the same time with a hundred different meanings in your head. Number three. Knowing what to do when God is moving. Knowing what to do when there is a visitation. We had a visitation on our church, 91, 92, 93. Something was just sitting on the church. We didn't even know it was a visitation. We didn't know. We just thought it was the way church is supposed to be. And God was speaking, but we couldn't interpret or translate and make it applicable as to what God was saying and doing. Go with me now to slide number four, please, the communication chart. I hope it looks good on screen. There are four ways in which communication is generally conducted. 
Number one, intimate communication. Please say intimate communication. Come on, say it like you want to be here. Say intimate communication. Amen. Say it like you eat at Cracker Barrel. Say intimate communication. Ah, Cracker Barrel people, huh? Level number two is business communication. Say that. Level number three, social communication. And level number four is peripheral communication. Intimate communication, for example, is what would Cheech and I would talk about in our bedroom, the stuff we would do in our room. That's intimate communication. That should not be in level number four on Facebook, peripheral communication. Ah, I can see some people know of certain family members that do certain things. Now, we, we have four sons and a daughter-in-law, Drin's the oldest of four. Uh, and even though we are closely knit family, there are things that Cheech and I will discuss and do that even our sons will not do or, or, or our sons will not be aware of because that's intimate communication. And generally, as a family, when we discuss stuff as a family, whatever it is, concerning of our business and our destiny, that's also in the realm of intimate communication. The second realm of communication would be business. And let me just say that if you have a board, or if you're part of a board, you're part of intimate communication. After the board meeting, nobody should know what was discussed on board level. Do I have a witness? <laughs> business communication. That's when we communicate to you what happens in the strategic room of a church like Triumph. Pastor Randon and the strategic team are knocking out ideas of things that have to be done. Then we communicate it to you in a business fashion. This is what we want to do. This is our intention. That's business communication. And then we communicate a little further on a social level where we encourage you to share that information with family or with uh, associates and so on and so forth. And then this peripheral communication where all y'all and everybody in the neighborhood gets to know of what we're doing. Etc. So when God speaks, there are times when God will speak and it's intimate communication is addressing you as an individual. And what God requires of you generally may not be expected to be imposed on others. And what happens is that many times when people are communicated to by God in intimate conversation, especially pastors and leaders, we tend to then put that in level number three and four and make it applicable for everyone and create unreasonable standards for an individual. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. Now, I want to deal, leave that in your head. I want to deal with prophecy. Prophecy is an essential part of being a human being. 1 Corinthians chapter number 14 advises us by apostolic instruction that we all may prophesy. In other words, we are entitled to Romans chapter number 4, verse 17, to call things that are not as though they already were. It's something that we have to do. It's called kaleo, to let life come out of your words, where you are not just regurgitating words, but where you are speaking prophetically to add a rhema or to add pneuma, spirit, to your words. 
So you are not just projecting wildly, you begin to prophesy. And many actions can actually be prophetic. Tithing is a prophetic action. When Abraham paid tithes, chapter 14 of Genesis, and it was spoken of in Hebrews chapter number 7, the Bible says he paid tithes to Levi or in Levi. And Levi, his great-grandson, was born 150 years after the event. So Abraham's tithe was a prophetic initiative for Levi, who later on becomes a priest, or his tribe becomes a tribe of priests, 700 years after one action. So prophetic action then, or prophetic word, has lasting implications. It'll go to your great-grandchildren, and you might even not have children right now. You might be a 19-year-old young woman. You might get married in the future. But what you say in an anointing like this can actually reach four generations ahead. Oh, you're not going to help me preach here this morning, but I'm going to preach to you. Because I want to get you to a breakthrough in your life. It's time that you open your mouth and spoke against all kinds of devouring spirits. Come on, Holy Ghost. Let me deal with prophecy now. And, and three things that must be understood in this presentation about prophecy. Firstly, there is a birthing of prophecy. That's the initial act where a prophetic word is spoken. It's called the birthing of prophecy. Then the prophetic word has a gestation or a, a, a developing period, rather, a growing period. Prophecy grows. And then there is the harvesting of the prophetic word. So it's birthing, growing, harvesting. I'll put it to you this way. It's obstetrics, pediatrics, bar mitzvah. <laughs> the obstetrics of prophecy is when it is spoken and birthed. The pediatrics of prophecy is when it's grown and developed. And the bar mitzvah of prophecy is its maturity or its graduation or its harvesting. And so if you don't understand that process, you can become wary in well-doing. And you can miss your due season. Now what you need to understand about prophecy is that when a prophecy is spoken, there could be a generation that's the obstetrics generation. Where it's a generation that's responsible for birthing a prophecy. Then there's a generation that will grow a prophecy. But there's also a generation that will harvest the prophecy. If you are in the generation that's going to harvest a prophecy, don't lose your mind. Don't go to Jonestown in Guyana and drink Kool-Aid. Don't get yourself messed up on Prozac or go to Colorado for medication. <laughs> oh, man. There's those Rocky Mountains getting to those guys. Genesis chapter number 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15. We have recorded there the first prophecy ever. As it pertains to the human family. Where God tells Adam and Eve who have just made a gross mistake. Eve made a mistake allegedly not knowing she did something wrong. She gave it to Adam. That's the fruit. Adam knowingly ate that fruit. 
Romans chapter number 5. He did that which was wrong, knowing he was doing wrong, and put the whole human family in jeopardy. That's another story. So God then addresses Adam and Eve and says, in the future, a child is going to be born out of you. And that individual will reverse what just happened here. The devil will bruise his heel. He will crush the devil's skull. A prophecy concerning Jesus. That prophecy was fulfilled. Galatians 4 verse 4. That prophecy was when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. That prophecy was 4,000 years old from when it was spoken to the time it was fulfilled. 4,000 years. In Genesis chapter number 15, verse 13, if you're writing and taking a note, God spoke to Abraham concerning the nation of Israel. He said, Abraham didn't have any kids. He said, you are going to have your children, a nation, that will go into slavery and they will be enslaved for 400 years. From the time God spoke that prophecy to when the children of Israel came out of slavery in Exodus chapter number 12 and verse 40 and 41 was a thousand years. One thousand years. If you go to uh, Joshua chapter number 6 and verse 26, when the walls of Jericho fell down, Joshua prophesied and said, the man that builds the walls of Jericho, he will pay for it with the death of his oldest son. And the man that lays the gates of Jericho, he will pay a price by the death of his youngest son. A man by the name of Heal in Second King, in First Kings chapter number 16, verse 34, rebuilt the walls of Jericho. His first son died. When he laid the gates, his last son died. That was 700 years, a prophecy of 700 years. 700 years. In Jeremiah 25 and verse 12, Jeremiah says, Slavery will be 70 years. That Israel or Judah will go into slavery for 70 years. In Daniel chapter number 9, verse 1, 2, and 3, Daniel understood the writings of Jeremiah and said that slavery was going to end and he began to pray. That was a prophecy of 70 years. Let me speed up now. In chapter number 4, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Kings, Elisha said to a Shunammite woman who built a little room on her house for the prophet, he said to her, next year, this time, you will embrace a son. That was a prophecy that was one year. Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, Elisha said to the king and to the city of Samaria that was in a horrendous, horrific famine. He said, tomorrow, this time, there'll be plenty to eat. The prophecy was 24 hours. In Matthew chapter number 26 and verse 36, Peter said to the Lord, he said, I'll go and die with you. And Jesus said to him, he said, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. That was a six-hour prophecy. So you have 4,000 years, you have 1,000 years, you have 700 years, you have 70 years, and there's many others I could have given you, but you have a six-year prophecy. The whole principle is still the same. 
Some knew it was coming. Some didn't know it was coming. The principle is this, that if a prophetic word has been released, a harvest season is imminent. I just got a feeling that something's about to brew and spill over for this church and for the Triumph family. That words that have been released, whether we know them or not, some of you are new to the Triumph experience, but the devil is a liar and so is his mother-in-law. Something's about to break forth in a serious way. You are about to be a beneficiary of some serious breakthrough. I need about a hundred people to clap your hands and put a smile on your face. I want you to tell your neighbor, say, don't sabotage your harvest. Don't sabotage your harvest. Baby, if you're in a harvest season, it's not a time to go crazy. It's a time to believe that God is going to fulfill what he promised. And if God has, is going to fulfill what he promised, it means that you want the receiving end. He said to Timothy, it's son Timothy, for every prophecy that's been spoken knowingly and unknowingly, you begin to war with that prophecy. It's coming. It's coming. If you got a word that you will be rich, you might be as broke as whatever. That word is going to be fulfilled in your life. Clap your hands if you have breath. deal with my case study and then I'll see you tonight. Here's my case study. My case study is taken from Matthew chapter number 17. If our tech geeks can put that up on the screen. Every church needs a geek or two. Amen. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them into a high mountain. So notice Jesus had 12 apostles. He took three of them into a high mountain. In other words, they are about to experience intimate communication. He leaves the nine down in the, at the bottom of the mountain. Verse number two. And was transfigured before them. His face began to shine as the sun. That must have been some sight. Didn't say his face began to shine. It began to shine as the sun. That's a billion candles. One billion candles in his face. A billion candles in his face. They see this thing. This is not like a Transformer movie. This is happening right in front of them. Right here. His face is shining like the sun. Watch this. And his clothes turned as white as light, which means that Jesus is now traveling at the speed of light. He's about to penetrate a dimension at 186,000 miles a second. These guys are seeing this. It's like they're watching Neo in the Matrix. And behold, they appeared unto them, Moses and Elias, or Elijah, speaking with him. So he takes them, three of them, brings them into the realm of intimate communication. They are in the realm of intimate communication. They see another realm, Moses and Elijah, 
speaking to him. Now, Jesus doesn't say to them, hey, guys, I'm about to show you Moses and Elijah. In that place of intimate communication, they just recognize this is Mo and Elijah. They just recognize that. Because in that place, your word and your revelation kicks in. They just, it's like two guys with a beard. Two guys with beards. They know this is Moses and this is Elijah. And they're talking to him. Now they can hear the conversation, but they can't understand the conversation because their revelation knowledge is not at that level of understanding. So there is intimate conversation within intimate conversation. Like your eye, there's an eye within your eye. There's an ear within your ear. There's a mind within your mind. Now I run a lot. And uh, just keeping fit and so on. And there are times when my body doesn't want to run. But I have to overrule my mind with the mind that's within my mind. It's a choice that you have to make. When your body's screaming for rest and the stuff you have to do, you have to overrule that. It's like you're in church and you don't want to worship. But you've got to get that carcass to a place where it must worship. You have to overrule your will and your mind. And if you're feeling sleepy, there's no rule that says you've got to sit on that seat. Stand against the wall and stay awake because the rain is coming for you. You have to overrule your emotion. You have to overrule your appetite. Because there's things that God's trying to get to you for your own good and for your children. Verse number... Four. Then Peter answered like somebody's talking to him. I mean, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. And Peter's like going to answer. He's like, what's the matter for you? Just listen. <laughs> Peter answered and said to Jesus. Now Jesus is in the middle of a main conversation with the father of the law and the father of the prophets. And this guy's brought here to observe a process of what he's going to enter into. And he's not going to run his mouth in the middle of intimate conversation. And he says, well, let's make three tabernacles here, one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you. Because if you don't understand what God is saying and doing in intimate conversation, our actions can be very juvenile, infantile, immature. All right. Verse number four, number five. A voice speaks in verse five, which is another level of intimate conversation. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Now, why was Jesus having a conversation with Moses and Elijah? Moses is the father of the law. Elijah is the father of the prophets. They have to speak to the son of the New Testament because the fathers have to impart to the sons what's coming in the future. And Jesus has to listen to their instruction so that he can be authorized to function in the New Testament. Now, when they come down from the mountain, Jesus says to his disciples, watch me very carefully, in verse number 7, he said, Arise, don't be afraid. 
And they lifted up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. Sounds like that church we just passed. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, Don't tell the vision to any person until the resurrection. Now watch that verse. It's a key verse. Because in that verse, Jesus is giving them an instruction, which is, I want to test you to see if you will keep intimate conversation intimate or if you're going to make it business, social, or peripheral. It's a test for you. But what Jesus is doing in that verse, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead, Jesus was prophesying his resurrection because the law and the prophets demanded his death. That's what Elijah and Moses were telling him. Now, son, you know that the law and the prophets are going to require you to die. But Jesus comes out of that inner conversation with the spirit of prophecy and says, I'm going to rise again. <laughs> Baby, you have to speak out of your mouth and make a declaration that's irrevocable. You have to stand like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings and tell that devil, you shall not pass. I will be blessed. I am going to be elevated. I am going to the next level. I don't need your permission to get there. Verse number 17. Verse number 15. I'm trying to preach. You just shout and preach. Help me preach. Amen. Like, preach, preach. Verse number 15. When they come down from the mountain, there's a man down there that says to Jesus, my son has a devil. And the nine have been battling with this thing. They can't cast this devil out. In Matthew chapter number 10, Jesus had given all the disciples power over devils. But in this verse, the man says, my son has a devil and your disciples can't cast him out. So Jesus asked them a question, you know, uh, when has this taken place? He says, go back to that verse, please. Go back to the verse. He casts him into the fire and casts him into the water. Now, this is going to be a test for Jesus to see if he got an impartation from Moses and Elijah. Because Moses is the water man. He's going to separate the Red Sea. He's going to bring water out of a rock. And Elijah is the fireman to see if he was, he was the one that called fire from heaven. So this was going to be a test and a sign to reveal to the demonic world, to the disciples, that Jesus had received a legitimate impartation from the Old Testament to empower him in the new. Because if he can heal this man that's vexed with the devil that throws him into the water, into the fire, it means that Moses and Elijah, the fathers, have given him an impartation to work legitimately. And Jesus cast out the devil. Because he was empowered to do that. I came to tell you as I close, you have to war by prophecy. Next week is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. This is a key week because this is a week you are going to have to war to experience what Jesus died and rose from the dead for. For your prophecies, for your promises, for the things that God has entrusted to you in so many ways. For you to be on the receiving end of the harvest, you have got to war by prophecy. 
We have to be serious about what God is doing. I'm wearing a Zimbabwean flag. We've been praying for our nation for forever and a day. Still holding on to the promise and believing that in due season we will, we will, we will receive what God has promised. Stand with me, let me pray with you. Stand with me, let me pray with you. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for this significant church here in Beaumont. We thank you for this wonderful ministry. We thank you for every man and woman, every family here. We thank you that you are blessing, you're elevating, you're raising. We thank you. We thank you that for all the promises you've given, that you are not reneging on your promise, that we will cash that check, and it will be good. We receive all of that in the name of Jesus from healing. We receive it from securing our children, securing our grandchildren for the many promises that you've placed on them. We receive it in the name of Jesus. We receive it wholeheartedly. I saw last night, I'm not sure if it's this service, somebody here has a, a, a relative that has been in prison. And uh, it's, not a, uh, it's, it's not a good thing. But in a dream I had last night, is that your prayers are going to reach that person and they're going to get a significant, significant move of God in their life. If, if anyone has a relative that's incarcerated, can you raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Amen. I'm going to believe. Amen. I'm going to believe with you that God is sending a word to that relative right now. And that you are going to speak a word of prophecy on their life. They won't even know. You're going to do the right thing. They won't even know you're doing the right thing. And they're going to receive some sort of significant blessing wherever they are. Father, we send that word. We send that word and we say our servants shall be healed. We receive your phenomenal blessing here in the name of Jesus.